0: Michael, how are you today? I'm very well, Luke. What about you? Tell me a story. Oh, I don't have any stories, to be honest. But I can tell you what uh, is going on in my world. It's not that interesting. But um, yes, mate, the market is changing at the moment, it would seem. I don't know how you're sort of uh, seeing things in, in your focus on New South Wales and it's nighttime and... Um, driving things forward, but I'm, I, I don't know, I'm personally hearing some very good uh, stories about the Sydney CBD at the moment, which is great. Um, every bit of feedback I have, and I actually was there a couple of weeks ago, yes, a couple of weeks ago now, it feels like forever ago, but it was heaving. Are you seeing the same thing and hearing the same thing from, um, from your sources?
1: It's definitely got that perception of heaving and it helps that we've got Vivid on and it's opened with a record weekend and, you know, it's mm. going incredibly well. Weather's pretty good as well, which always helps in Sydney. I am speaking at an upcoming conference, actually, and uh, I I don't know if by this time people will have seen the uh, um, Callum Boys, uh, Sydney, Melbourne food discussion, and it sort of prompted me to update where I was at, at, going out and checking out new Sydney restaurants, and so, there is a long list of places that I simply haven't gotten to as, mm. you know, this sort of deluge of new properties come onto the market. And, you know, I guess one of the big high-profile openings is La Foot and the Rocks, which is a Swillhouse uh, venture. And I had a sneaky peek the other day, and uh, it's uh, all looking as one would expect from the swill House team. And, um, and you know, it's just a you're reminded if we can get the conditions right on something... Uh, how wonderful it can be and I was reflecting on this as a kind of stroll past the old side of Bulletin Place and th- was thinking about you know <laughs> at that time opening a small bar for 40 people when the city's tearing it's uh, uh you know it's put an open heart surgery at the light rail going through and it just being a bit of a, a very challenging market plus lockouts and the rest of it to what we have today and I don't know, Luke, I'd say that with all those um, sort of nice offerings coming in now, Capella, uh, the Housemate Hospitality team are doing uh, around Circular Quay, it's going to be, if uh, it's got to be headed for being one of the most um, distinguished dining precincts on the planet, one would think.
0: It's amazing. I mean, I haven't thought about this uh, at all until you literally just brought it up but it's amazing how you see the shift of um, food and beverage across the city over time, right? Like the, the Rocks and Circular Quay five to ten years ago wouldn't have been perceived as, to, as a go-to destination for dining, but now when you add that, you know, LaForge, Inchcliff House, I was there when I was in Sydney last time, it was like you can walk into that joint at any time of day and it's got vibe and there's just heaps of people in there. It was awesome. And then Bar is getting a lot of play down there as well on um, Bridge Street, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I ain't got to that one yet, Um, but uh, I mean it's and
1: in in, and you know even in Vivid they've added a food component which is it's just been like you know it's been such an obvious thing that we've all like not thought about you know Sydney's got a great food scene but we don't really position it as such in 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 tourism and marketing comms in the way that other cities really do and so you know the fire pit down at the cutaway um, has Mm -hmm. just got like a list of um, you know just incredible chefs um, firing away at the moment. So, uh, look, it's not to belie some of the other challenges, you know, there's kind of the cost of living challenges that the city's facing and all those things, and it's coming into winter. But I think that a good thing is that capital has said, well, we're coming anyway, uh, and we're going to put these restaurants into the market. And I think, you know, the challenges are there, but if you can survive this next little period and come into Sydney in spring, Sydney in summer, that's, uh, you know, that that's what people want to do. And we're still missing we're still missing a, a bucket load of international tourists um, in, in comparative terms. And here's a stat for you that came up at the Tourism Transport Forum that I spoke at recently. In terms of Sydney CBD, it's 81% on visitation compared to pre-COVID. But that right. 81% of visitation is generating 97% of revenue. Right. To 2019. So... You get back to a hundred percent. Yeah, what what it means is that people are just using the place for entertainment and and that that's reflected. Like the spend mid later in the week is higher than it was pre COVID, if that makes sense. Although, you know, the Monday period's about eighty six percent or something like that. So, you know, it's um to me looking at it, it's it's good and, and then again, you know, let's not even forget what's going on all around Greater Sydney with um people working from home and what that's doing with um improving places like Burwood and Penrith and others. So you know, I'm pretty optimistic, but then again, that's probably how I've been for the last <laughs> the last 40-odd years, So,
0: Well, mate, I think there's a couple of things there, and I know we're probably rabbiting on, but I feel like the industry as a whole is really optimistic. Like, I, I obviously speak to a lot of different operators across most of the country um, regularly, and there is just this inherent optimism, which is probably, you know, par for the course for the type of individual that goes into the sector in, in general. But the other thing is, you know, the food is... To go back to your your point, food is remaining exceptionally strong. Uh, you know, again, speaking to different operators, they may be seeing a drop in bev, but people are still very happy to go out and spend money on food, which is a really good thing. And, the, and, I, and I think it's all potentially, without you know, I'm not no economist, but potentially well linked to the cost of living pressures because the cost of actually going and purchasing food and then having to cook it yourself from a supermarket is probably on par with you know, being able to go out to a pub or a cafe or even some restaurants and actually have someone prepare it for you and, and, and have an experience. So you may not be spending a hundred bucks on the bottle of wine with your meal, but you, you, you're getting a good meal and maybe a glass of wine. So a lot of, uh, again, a lot of operators I've been thinking to have seen food sales stay really steady, but it's probably the beverage that's dropping off a little bit. Well, that could also just
1: be the macro trend of uh, reducing alcohol consumption right. per capita. But anyway, We digress, but a good digression. Um, Who's on today? Today, we have Kimberly
0: Manning. Kim's the Head of Talent Acquisition for Delaware North. Not everyone would would have come across Delaware, but in terms of international food and beverage providers, uh, they are one of the biggest, so they're a multinational company. You know, a couple of examples. I guess they they run the MCG in in Melbourne. Obviously, tennis, uh, the Australian Open um, is operated by them. So they're uh, an exceptionally large uh, employer. And Kim, prior to heading to Delaware, was actually with Crown in Melbourne. So that's the first time we actually met. And and again, another very large employer. So her insight on attracting talent and and uh, the experience for talent as they enter a business is one that I've always really appreciated and we thought just given the you know the current climate and the changing market in terms of the amount of talent that is available uh, and, and how businesses need to treat them to, to have them sort of stay and remain in the industry, um, Kim's insight might be really valuable. so that's who we have on today and I'm looking forward to chatting with her as am I and
1: I'm sure her insight will be valuable.
0: So welcome to the Back of the House podcast, Kim. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, as usual, we tend to start off by inviting our guests to give a bit of an overview of, uh, I guess, their personal journey through the industry, um, just so we can really uh, – we've we'll done an introduction before this, letting everyone know all the wonderful things that you have done and that you do, but – from your in your words can you just give us a bit of an insight as to an overview sorry as to you know how you entered the industry your career path and and the journey that led you to where you are now
2: yeah sure thank you and thanks for having me on I, i think uh I don't proclaim to be a hospitality expert, (laughs) so uh, I've tried it a few times in operations uh, unsuccessfully. So uh, my first gig at the the tender age of 17, I actually uh, worked in a a bar restaurant. It was actually frequented by uh, some of Melbourne's mafia, which I found out later. Uh, I was a clumsy hospitality front of house worker so uh, lots of people ended up with the uh, drinks and food on their lap so um I got out of that pretty quickly uh, and worked in hotels but uh, my my passion for hospitality predominantly sits in that talent acquisition space so I've been working in talent acquisition so everything uh, on hiring people in uh, hospitality um, so 18 years in talent acquisition and 14 of those have been in hospitality. So I don't think I've ever felt so hospo as I do now in my current role, but uh, yeah, no, I have an absolute love of the industry and a true appreciation of what everyone does.
1: Are you indexing your uh, hospitality-ness by the amount you swear? Is that the... um
2: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Yep. There is a type, isn't there? Yeah, no, absolutely. I was uh, listening to a lot of the podcasts and uh, I just came in going, it's good. I don't have to mind my P's and Q's here, so which is really good. You'll see me combust otherwise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can you um, just give a bit of insight into the roles that you've held in the organisation and uh, I guess some of the... Specific in terms of scale, because I think part of the reason, and we would have covered this in the intro, but you've obviously worked in some very dynamic, large-scale operations and employed a significant number of people, not only, you know, through the recruitment process, but in terms of managing, you know, the human resources aspect of very large teams. So, can you just give us a bit of insight into some of those roles and, and, and the numbers that we're talking about?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I, I have a type, leak. you're right. So, I, I actually... Uh, joined uh, Crown Resort. So I was actually at Crown for around 12 years in their uh, talent recruitment teams. Um, and, you know, from a hiring perspective, uh, Crown Melbourne, uh, which is sort of my first uh, gig there, Crown Melbourne uh, hired around 2,000 people a year. So, um, but predominantly permanent uh, part-time uh, staff. So looking after all the hiring for, gaming, uh, restaurants, um, all the wonderful chefs, um, and all the, the back of house, uh, functions. And then, uh, where I am now, Delaware North, they, um, hire a lot more people, but a lot more casual. So, you know, we, last year, we actually hired around eight and a half thousand, uh, new hires, which was a pretty tough time, but we did it last year. But yeah, very different kind of companies, you know, high volume, uh, recruitment, uh, hiring hospitality. But, uh, Delaware North, where I am now, is a lot more casualized. So, uh, you know, we have a, an optimal staffing pool of around seven and a half in, in uh, Melbourne and it's our role to sort of maintain that and grow that um, as we need to. But, um, you know, in, in my time at Crown Melbourne, we saw uh, a, a lot more involved in the hotel side. You know, we saw an opening of Crown Metropole Hotel, did a lot of openings of a uh, number of restaurants there. And just before I left uh, Crown sort of Three Weeks after coming back from parental leave, can I say pandemic in this podcast? Of
0: course, has it been in done? To-
2: I'm sure it has, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh,
0: it's still fresh in people's memories. That's for
2: Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Uh, where were you when the pandemic started? Um, uh, so yeah, so get, coming back from parental leave, I was looking after taking on Crown Sydney, so we actually uh, were responsible for hiring for Crown Sydney, so we had to hire about 1800 people, and as you can appreciate, our, our recruitment tax. Change pretty significantly of how we were going to do that. So, you know, and at the same time, we uh, turned into like an outplacement uh, company. So we actually had. 11,000 stood-down employees that we helped redeploy into jobs uh, outside of Crown that were actually hiring at the time. So, um, yeah, pretty diverse, but at the same time, centred around, you know, hospitality and hiring, you know, shitloads of people. <laughs> Did I say, I should say, what I should say, shitloads of very highly skilled, qualified, fantastic people,
1: but yeah, lots of people. But just, I like how the commonality there was shitloads. It's not the <laughs> <laughs> the scientific measure, not a busload. A plane Absolutely. Load, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think when we met, I can't even remember how long ago this was, it was definitely before COVID, we did a bit of work, I mean, the, the facility, if we look at Crown specifically, I think at that yeah. time you gave me a stat that you were the biggest employer within the hospitality sector in Australia, is that correct?
2: said that to you at the time didn't I we we would have been there <laughs> we had a lot of stats there we're actually the the biggest uh by consumption of one site of red bull um across uh, the southern <laughs> hemisphere but uh and just by the crown staff employees but um yeah so they uh, from a near hospitality employer they probably would have been the biggest at the time from a permanent brand hiring permanent staff in hospitality for sure yeah so crown perth uh crown melbourne and crown sydney so collectively you know I'm going to take a stab here, and don't quote me Crown, but uh, probably about uh, 14,000 employees.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. And I guess what, what what were some of the key takeaways that you had from a position like that where you're looking at a workforce that is, you know, highly specialised and taking some of the culinary aspects um, and then obviously gaming? Yeah. How do you, how do you approach something like that?
2: Yeah. Um, be kind to chefs. <laughs> Look after <laughs> chefs. I have a true appreciation for the, the culinary teams. Oh, look, you just got to have a, a really compelling brand, do the right thing. You know, I'm a, a big advocate for just, you know, saying what you're going to do, doing it and uh, and checking in on people. It's it's pretty simple, right? So you create a, a pretty compelling hiring strategy around, you know, what your attraction is, why do people want to go there as opposed to when, anywhere else. And I am a massive fan. I'm pretty shameless in the world of talent acquisition. So I, I will contact everyone. <laughs> I will contact everyone about an opportunity. And I've really instilled that in the talent teams is our job in talent is not just about uh, reviewing resumes. You know, you can get robots to do that now. <laughs> It's uh, it's more than that. So there's this human experience that you have in the recruitment process, and a lot of the value that I've taken anywhere to, to my roles is about the acquisition side of what we do is is networking, knowing who the good people are, and converting them into a you know a great great hire, and looking after them while they're with that while they're on site. Pretty simple stuff.
0: It is that's seldom uh, you know executed to a really high standard. I think, Mike, you know, we've spoken about that a lot recently, and it seems to be a very prominent topic of conversation across the sector. Is that attraction piece for the industry as a whole? You know, and I think getting that clear um, understanding of what you're you, you're offering someone yeah. was that a process that you were able to go through with? Like, a, was there a process to it in terms of identifying what it was that would attract people? And if so, and what were those things? And were was, there any things that were more effective than others?
2: Yeah, it was uh, anyone that knows me well, I'm never satisfied. <laughs> so I'm, I I, I'm, I self-critique, I, you know, I ask for feedback. We actually started feedback, you know, you should have your feedback on your, your hiring experience and your recruitment process, right? So that's a pretty non-negotiable for me, but uh, everyone's going to tell you really great things. So I've just got a job. I'm happy. <laughs> Great, your net promoter score is really, really high. Um, you know, and yes, I would, uh, I would recommend people to to come and work at wherever. Uh, again, based on my experience, people are going to tell you pretty good stuff when they've just been hired. So, we spend a lot of time around uh, that candidate piece. So, candidate to me has always been my number one customer in the hiring process. So, still love my hiring managers. I get you. I hear you. But my candidate is very much, a, you know, a number one customer. So, I started introducing surveys to uh, candidates that were unsuccessful in our hiring process. So, And it's interesting how that feedback can tailor a little bit and change, but you get some more meaningful insights in there. Um, yeah, very much, you know, built a team around being successful recruitment champions or hiring manager champions. So, that experience that people had in the process was so pivotal to me and the business um, and it's about building in our brand. So someone comes in, they take the time to however you run selection and just making sure it's a, regardless of whether they've been unsuccessful, that it's been a really relevant, very good experience for them. So simple things on creating in that team at the time, I created a lot around metrics and and KPOs around just getting back to people. So I actually had measured the time it took us to get back to people. I put a benchmark in place, the time uh, someone was in pro And when we got back to them uh, after interview, it's very simple things. But um, I think what's always made sure that we're front and centre is just the ability to communicate to people well and on time. The other thing is everyone's hiring in hospitality and, you know, and even when I was at Crown, less competitive than it is now, we had to make sure our processes were competitive. So from the moment someone interviews with us, you obviously want to take them to the next stage straight away um, yeah. and they know where they are during the process. And, you know, and from a, also from a hiring perspective, there's so many channels we can use to attract staff and, you know, I'm very multifaceted around that. I just, uh, advertising, you know, probably at Crown at the time was about 30% of all the hires. It was everything else you were doing around internal mobility. So, you know, uh, offering internal opportunities to, you know, partnerships, platforms, uh, training, education, etc., cetera, uh, to try and sort of help fill, you know, the the people coming into the business. Cause I just want the simple thing and I just want it.
1: I have two questions and I'll I'll at least try and remember the first one um, as I ask it. In terms of that, uh, I love this idea of asking the unsuccessful candidates. So one or two absolute clangers when you've got that feedback you're going through. Is there anything that you're like, oh my God, that's great feedback and and we should look at that? Is there anything that sort of comes to mind?
2: Timely feedback was the original thing that came back. It took me too long to find out I was unsuccessful. And yeah, definitely that, that needed to be improved and uh and it certainly was. Um I, I think you know it's it's emotional when someone's unsuccessful for an opportunity, right? So um and it hurts. <laughs> it hurts. Mm. So yeah, so just making sure like, a lot of people and we trained hiring managers and I've always had in my career around don't give someone the indication that they've got a job if they're not going to get a job. So there's this thing about being authentic, but also creating great experiences. So it's people feeling like they were successful because someone says, great answer, fantastic. Oh, amazing. Yeah, great. You know, the whole way through the interview, which is great. But when you come to decline someone that's had that experience, it's kind of like, why? (laughs) So um, Mm. they were kind of key learnings. The other thing was just mainly it was the communication and the time, even things down to, you know, the venues that I've looked after are, you know, really quite hard to get to. (laughs) So how do you make it easy for people to know how to get to a certain area uh, in a complex that's really quite difficult uh, to find? There's no one street address. So, yeah, we looked at uh, working on all those key things, uh, which, you know, absolutely made an impact.
1: It's unrelated, but I I was just reflecting on um, the – very precise definition of shitloads previously. And in, I think it was mainly perhaps in the recruitment processes for Crown, but in, I've never been close to this, but when um, I've observed shifts in the market, like for example, when the acquisition behaviours happened with Urban Fair Group and Rockpool for like some time back, uh, you, you know, wages sort of had a lift at certain levels. Like just the sheer demand that, Uh, something like that puts on the system did you sort of see that happening with like the mass acquisition for crown and uh was it a discussion was it budgeted in or did you have to go back and get more cash for people like what's the dynamic that it creates
2: at crown not really it's pretty structured so you know different to where i am now you know we've got the heger award as our foundation award uh, in some areas, we operate an enterprise agreement, but Crown was very much set stone in enterprise agreement or salary. So, you know, what they're doing now, it, it might be a little bit different to, to where I was at the moment. But, you know, opening up key restaurants where you're looking at specific skill set, for example, for for chefs, I think uh, one of the hardest roles at the time was a turbo walk chef, <laughs> trying to find them. Uh, and not just one or two, there's, you know, more at scale. So, and it's so competitive. So you get a lot of small smaller companies that can flex their their salaries up. So, Crown can be quite structured and it's very hard to do that when there's very set salaries. So, um, there's other ways to look at attraction um, and that's through, you know, the career pipeline. Um, So, okay, we'll come here. We might not pay you as much, but, you know, if you come here, you're actually one of X amount of thousand people and your career can go to X, Y and Z. So, I think it's, you've got a lot more uh, value proposition to sell as, as opposed to your weekly earnings, which is still very important, don't get me wrong, but it's knowing how to talk to people and knowing what's important to them and knowing how to sell that. Does that answer your question, Michael?
1: Yeah, I think so. Like I, I was just uh, – it, it, um, yeah, I, I, have, I have several others, but um, I, I may throw back to leave here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, looking at your – I guess I had a well, – question. actually, I've got a two-part question in terms of the um, attraction strategies – Are they different now compared to what they were maybe five years ago take the pandemic out of it? But like just in terms of how they have changed over the past period of time, they could be due to the pandemic or not. It might just be time um, as new technologies open up. And just from an operational perspective, in terms of how you're managing, you know, say auditing or, or, or keeping track of the timeline between giving, you know, an interview and then giving that person feedback. How did you actually do that operationally? Because that that might be actually quite helpful. People understand, you know, was there technology involved in that? Was it was it more rudimentary than that in terms of managing spreadsheets or whatever it might have been?
2: Yeah, sure. It's a good question. How long's the podcast? (laughs) Long (laughs) enough, as long as you need. (laughs) Hey, I, I, I challenge what I thought I knew and what I know now, and I think everyone's in the same boat, right? So I don't profess, although I've got a lot of experience, I don't profess to know everything because so much has changed. So yeah, my whole, in this market now, to where it was last year, to where it was a couple of years before that, it's all changed. So the role I have now is quite different because I've I've come on board with Deloitte to set up a talent acquisition function. So with that comes a, um, a strategy on building technologies as opposed to coming from a mature talent function. Um, so yeah, so we're in that you know evolution at the moment of of where we've got to be with technology. But yeah, absolutely. Since I've been on board here, I've adapted a lot of different hiring technologies to help support. Not so much in the you know measuring the uh, the time it takes to get back to people. We've got a pretty clunky port- report that I've downloaded to to check in on that. Um, but I've got lucky enough to have a really Strong team that actually cares about that experience, or <laughs> they hide to care about that experience. So, you know, that's managed pretty well organically, I would say. But um, from a technology perspective, yeah, look, I put in a, a tech stack, which is will change again to what we get, which I would say would be best in class um, two years down the track. But it's changed, you know, how quickly we can recruit and just making it super easy, particularly for the casual market. It's a if you're not, um, don't have things in place that are just quick, easy, competitive and friendly for people, they're not going to bother. Um, mm. So, yeah, so we've looked at a lot of things from talent acquisition and what we use, tech we use to what we use in terms of uh, when someone sort of gets their first shift in a casual employee, how they're using our app. And we're trying to make it super friendly so they can pick and choose. And it's just easy for people. I don't think we've really fundamentally got the answer yet, but we're on the right train to get it.
0: I was interested in terms of, obviously, your perspective around talent and what they're looking for, like what you're hearing from them now in terms of what they're looking for and what's motivating them. Because, again, this is, Mm. you know, I can't can't think of too many meetings that I go to where that doesn't come up where, you know, there's not insight, thought from employers as to how they can best meet the market in terms of, you know, what's motivating them. Have you got much insight on that? Are there there recurring themes in terms of, you know, if you look at the casualised workforce and then even the permanent workforce, whether they're the same or different? Um, what's your, yeah. your take on that?
2: Very different. So, casuals, yeah, with the insights, actually, we're at, about to roll out a, a new employee value proposition uh, for the Australia and New Zealand business. So, our American business rolled that out last year and, and they did a lot of data, uh, a lot of testing of that to, to roll it out, but <laughs> it was done pre-COVID. So, you know, I can probably talk to less so from there, what are we hearing? Uh, we've got a number of um, surveys that will be coming out, which will help us with that. But from a casual perspective, I know that our casuals get attracted by the venue the ease of getting to a venue as well. Um, the uh, the ability to pick and choose their own hours. The other thing is around uh career progression less so in casual. Um, although some people start out in casual and want that, but we've got a lot of casuals that are working in highly, you know, senior roles in corporate that work at the MCG for us on a on a weekend. So it's a real mixture of, of people. Um but yeah, casuals I, I would say for for us to be competitive you've got to be quick and you've got to own that share of the market. It sounds terrible, but you've got to, the moment you find someone, convert them as quickly as you can. Um, And, you know, the value to them is, you know, for a brand like us is the opportunity to work across a number of different venues so you're not just stuck somewhere. And that seems to work really well. 80% of our casuals want to work multi-site and want that experience of working at other venues and really the only restrictions on casuals that don't is they prefer by location because it's just convenience to, to get there from a permanent perspective I'm sure you've heard this a lot but careers are accelerating a lot faster Than they ever have before so it's very much about the career journey and the growth um, that we're seeing a lot of at the moment what people are really attracted by you know we ask everyone the same question what are you motivated by why did you apply and it's really that opportunity to work for a brand where you can grow your career so that is definitely um, something that we're mindful of and we sell and influence throughout the process but yeah just uh, even things like during the the pandemic I looked at uh, some data and people were actually motivated by health and safety <laughs> so it was like a benefit of how well uh, companies maintain health and safety it's probably a non-issue now i don't know it hasn't been tested but it's not mm. as big an issue now people are you know are out and about but but yeah the, the changing uh, wants and needs of people i mean i look at data all the time from you know seek and they measure pretty well what people are looking for across different sectors and And money is a factor in hospitality. Um, It's still one of the lowest paid industries across Australia. So money is a real factor. So how do you sell that? And if you're paying what everyone else pays or what else do you do that's
0: financially um, beneficial for them? Mm, That's an interesting – it was going to be my next question because I think Mm. if if I think back to pre-COVID, we would have probably not put money at the top of the list of – motivating factors for talent, like, you know, the work environment, how they're treated the culture of a business, the brand alignment, for example, will probably rank pretty high. Obviously, money is always a factor, but it seems like now that's, that's shifted pretty considerably and it's probably at the top.
2: Yeah, money, uh, flexibility as well people want flex, um, so flex can look like many things. Flexibility in hospitality was uh, an interesting concept pre-COVID, um, <laughs> Sorry, um, but now that's, um, yeah, flexibility of just, you know, I can work on my terms and, you know, the power that if you look at the pendulum of, you know, jobs versus candidates, it's still in the candidates, um, uh, on the candidate side, so they've still got a big voice of what they want, when they want, how they want it, so it's it's really catered into, you know, that market where it's still very candidate short,
0: albeit better, but very candidate short. Can you give any insight at all in terms of how you approach the topic of flexibility? Is it something that you are able to achieve in... Because I know there's a lot of businesses grappling with that because it is universal across the talent market, but, you know, at all levels, really, people are wanting some level of flexibility wherever it can be possibly given. Um, have yeah. you found any ways that you can offer that?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're a pretty flexible company. Uh, from our... I really talk to casuals, haven't I? They seem to be um, <laughs> really dominating uh, what I do. But, um, yeah, from our casual workforce, that you can pick and choose when you want to work, like, first and foremost. So we don't hire on we you must be available saturday friday whatever it may be we hire Casual employees and give them the option to pick and choose when they work. So, you know, our app um, that we have for for rostering it allows them to say these are the hours, these are the days, and then I only want to see shifts that come in in these in my times. Um, so that that's really important uh, from a permanent perspective. You know, operational permanent roles, I would say, you know, is still a challenge around what flexibility means. <laughs> flexibility can mean many different things. Uh, a lot of our workforce is um, flexible in terms of where we when we are at work, but that's the the support functions for the business. Uh, when you're operational and customer facing, <laughs> it's a little challenging, right? So, but there's a lot of a lot of other things that you can do to you know cater for what that flexibility looks like.
1: Can I just ask you a question? When you said ease of ven- finding a venue, like is that kind of travel arrangements to and from work? Is that that? Subset of issues, or
2: yeah, it's actually more yeah, yeah. But it's also when you get there. So can you, uh you know, MCG is a really big place. So one of our weather hospitality provider there. So you know, if you think of a, a sixteen-year-old doing their first shift at the G, that you know doesn't normally go there. <laughs> Trying to get them to go to a certain gate. There's a little window they've got to get to, and then the staffing checking area is one way, and it's just so daunting, right? So a lot of our recruitment selection has been sort of 50% on site. So group interviews 50 percent video uh one-way video interviewing or or teams yeah so when you sort of come into your first shift it's super daunting so the team have done a really good job in creating video content to say you know go here and you'll see this and but it's a it's not a they're unique venues to actually find and to get into so it could be quite daunting for people to yeah to get to their first shift
1: I've been reflecting. We had an international night um, time policy forum a couple of weeks ago and uh, this discussion kind of comes up time and time again in terms of uh, um, late night uh, transport in particular. And Yeah. And obviously, like it's often ta- – and it's also that, – that comes up. The other thing that comes up is uh, it's really late night. I can't find something to eat or drink. And so you, there's this mm. – and but a lot of the discussion for – Late night trading is, um, I think, often centered around the experience of the reveller, the person who wants to go out. Um, and I, th- I was just sort of reflecting, as a result of this conference, on what if we made the focus of the discussion the late night experience for the worker, as opposed to the reveller. So, so, and and taking into account not only hospitality workers but hospital workers as a, as part of that, supermarket workers, people who are using the night as their uh, as we use the day and trying to redesign um, transport solutions and other amenity solutions around that. So I was kind of thinking about, you know, it, like the transport piece for people going out in a city like Sydney is a significant component. I think we don't think about that enough. It's just the assumption is people will be able to find a way to get there, but it's sometimes 20 to 30% of the cost of the experience and then there's, you know, 20 to 30% of the time of the experience. So it's actually... You know such a big chunk of the uh experience that um you know I, I i do I do wonder on the talent side, particularly when you've got affordability issues in a city, how much of a impediment it is to a workforce
2: yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, Sydney's a terrible place to, to live. So moved to Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we'll take that as we'll take that as opinion. We'll take that as opinion.
2: <laughs> uh, no, not really. Love Sydney. Um uh, no, I, I think um uh, you are absolutely right. How do you make it easy? Yeah, you know, we actually even talked about getting a, a Delaware North bus and Picking someone up and, you know, taking them from one stadium to the next stadium and, you know, just making it easy. So we're still working on that. I think there's a, there's a lot in there because you're right. A lot of uh, our shifts can be quite short. So what's the value of someone coming in from wherever they're coming in from, particularly if it's quite far out with our train system and, um, or the affordability of getting in and out and parking? It's, um, yeah, it is a, it's definitely an issue that we have hope you're not offended about Sydney, Michael. Sorry. It's
1: all right. I'll just be quiet for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> no, mate, uh, no, 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 not, not at all. I was, I was down in Melbourne uh, very recently for the first time in a while and uh, was reminded how much better weather we have up here. So um, back to you, Luke. <laughs> um, I have
2: to say it's about 11 degrees today, Melbourne. It's just woeful. So you're, you're absolutely right and touché. <laughs> it's
0: not too dissimilar in Sydney at the moment, that's for sure. If we can look more uh, i guess at a shorter timeline because i think again conversations of late i think that 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 window of time that people are looking at has definitely um shortened to look at maybe you know even december or the back end of the last quarter of last year to what's happening now because it seems like the market has shifted quite significantly from a talent perspective from an acquisition perspective what are you seeing on that front and uh, do do you the same thing, you know. I mean, if you look again, again, casual players, workforce, and the firm um, workforce. I know we had a bit of a chat about it the other day, but no one else here was on that call, so. Um, <laughs> what do you see?
2: <laughs> yeah, there's been a fundamental shift, and I feel like I'm winning this year so <laughs> nice. you know that that's uh and you know that that's kind of that indication is uh you know we're filling roles our uh, percentage of open vacancies are, are well down um our you know our sourcing that we do around trying to attract people to actually be in our process is uh working really really well so we're just getting more people interested and you know we've really now our strategy is focused again to look at you know the experiences first and foremost but Look at, you know, how do we elevate uh, the right behaviors into our business and the right people into our business that are aligned to our, our values? And you know, just been raising the bar, I guess, in terms of what we're looking for, which is a nice place to be. But yeah, we've definitely seen uh, a, a real shift, but it still is a candidate short market. And I think hospitality has been in that same place pre-pandemic, right? It's uh, it's never been an easy gig to fill all of your roles, particularly for skilled roles. Certainly, we're doing um, we're doing really well with our culinary space, um, which has always been a an area that's really hard to fill, and particularly at the scale that that we do. So, yeah, culinary is going really well. well I'm just t- touching wood now, but um, <laughs> um and, you know, probably the issues now that we're dealing with is just you know looking at things through our funnel and our pipeline so from when we assess someone straight away we'll give them a contract we'll if they're successful we'll give them a contract and we'll take them through our hiring process so we're super competitive on that but we're looking at what is our percentage rate of you know offer to accept what is um from once someone's accepted a role how are they going are they still in the business after a 30 60 90 day period so we're starting to be a little bit more sophisticated on how we're looking that talent coming into our business uh, which is a, a nice place to be. Last year for everyone, I'm sure, was um, someone described it as a bloodbath last year and it was kind of summed it up for me. Yeah, so I think um, it's, yeah, definitely shifting. But, you know, the key roles that seem to be really quite hard to fill, I, you, know, you and I were talking about this the other day, function roles. You know, a lot of people have yeah. left operational function roles. So they're, thank God we don't have many in the market, but they're, they're really quite difficult to fill. And getting our challenge is getting people across location so we've got a fantastic property at middle beach casino resort uh, in darwin so but trying to get you know some really strong talent across to middle beach can be really challenging because of the location
0: mm. i've got another double barrel question coming at you the upshifting people that you're seeing become available where are they coming from are they people that are coming from other businesses overseas re-entering the market after maybe taking a bit of a break i'm not going to Give you the answer, but you know where, where are they actually coming <laughs> Can from? Can you give me the answer? Are
2: you are you <laughs> um, talking about like for Mindle Beach?
0: No, or I just mean like, in general, like are people of- coming into our roles? Yeah, in terms of you you know, winning this year, mm. there, there, there are more people in the market, and I'm just curious if you have any, any insight as to where they're actually coming from. I think you know, anecdotally, backpackers seem to be back, so they're, they're helping on that casual front. But you tell me, and the other part of the question is, are, are there any remaining gaps that are significant um, you know, outside of the function roles? But um, mm. are there any sort of, or well, maybe not gaps in, gaps in people, but just in the skill set that you're, you're able to get coming through the door?
2: Yeah, sure. So um <laughs> different in different areas, uh Lee, But uh we're seeing so we still get our internationals coming through, but for some some spots, so we'll buy in skills from international for roles where it's really still hard to acquire that talent here. Secondly, I have seen so many Colombians this year, particularly at our Australian Open, uh, many South American workers coming into the country. It's been awesome, fantastic bunch of people we've met but yeah so we've had a lot of backpackers of course coming in um, which we've seen a huge rise in international workers has been great uh, for the business Uh, and then I guess the what I'm looking at now is Uh, I'm a very, very strong female advocate and, you know, I would love to see more females in culinary. I'd love to see more females in senior leadership roles. So that's sort of a skill gap that we have uh, or demographic gap that we have across the industry and hospitality. So I'm just shifting my focus to go, how do we make ourselves super attractive to uh, strong female leaders and particularly females in the culinary space? We just launched a, built a apprenticeship program for the business. So we just launched that this year. So we're actually out in market, close to filling 18 apprentices for the business. It's fantastic that we've got some really good females in that group. So, you know, long-term strategy, but um, yeah, definitely love to see a more even view of our uh, demographics with uh, more females.
0: We should double click on that. And Mike and I were talking about this today in terms of, you know, pathways for female leaders in hospitality because it is a real challenge. Like you get to there's a not a ceiling, but there is a point at which, um, you know, particularly around, you know, if you want to have children, for example, it becomes harder to maintain a career within hospitality. Have you got any ideas or have you implemented any strategies that have looked to overcome that as a challenge and make that process of re- either returning to work or even just promoting long term careers for women in the sector in general? Even take the take the the motherhood or, or um, yeah. parenting topic out of but we don't seem to retain as many females as, as, for as long a period in the industry as we do males like it's it's very easy to see um, that's the case have you have you put anything in place that might help solve?
2: Oh, it's just, it's it's interesting. It's difficult in any industry, right? Um, you know, personal experience having children and coming back into the workforce and the cost of childcare and, you know, the community, it's just, a, it can be really draining, really tough. But um, I think you need really strong female advocates in the organisation to really uplift women, to encourage them to apply. First and foremost, um, someone they can aspire to. I, I think that's really important. We recently hired a fantastic female leader in the culinary Space and she's just uh, phenomenal. And, you know, I'm, um, I, you know, I even say to Candy, if you're not sure, just have a chat with her, (laughs) you know, just have a conversation. So, you know, females inspiring, uplifting, and encouraging other females is really important. And it's, it goes back to flexibility. It's, it's really tough when you've got, to, you know, two people working full-time with kids. There's got to be flex somewhere. Um, so, and often it's the the female that has to flex and not the male. So, I'm very uh, strong and going, well, why should we have to <laughs> have to have that flexibility when it's not on offer for for a male? So, I think companies need to step in and be, you know, and be a little bit more groundbreaking. And we don't do it well in hospitality. We do it well in other sectors. But, you know, paid parental leave, you know encouraging the male to take that leave um you know it's just simple things that can make a big difference that we are very traditional
1: in the hospitality space it's we um now i'm in the public service this is one of the big things that's kind of been shed shed a light on like i think i was just quickly doing a google because this thing is moving around quite a bit and new south wales public service i think now is uh 24 weeks if you are a man, which the the big inhibitor is, of course, like if if, if the father can only take two weeks off, what, what does the family do in that situation? You know, it's, it's yeah. and so yeah. the shift actually is, uh, you know, the hospitality I just sector love needs, that. Needs, by needs. By the way, I've just
2: given you a love emoji for that one. <laughs> they, the
1: hospitality sector needs to, to, to think about the parental leave program it's, it's putting in place for, yeah, for, for men.
2: Yeah, I, I'm a. I've been on a, the gender equity advisory group. I, I'm a, you know, passionate female. I've looked at many, many strategies to encourage women into the workforce and and really to grow their careers. I think um, that just needs to be top down um, in any company, and you know, I, I just think we could be doing a lot better in hospitality.
0: Yeah, agreed.
2: And we are a work in progress, by the way. It was certainly a supportive and flexible business, but um, there's a, a number of initiatives that uh, I'm sure we could all do to make it better and easier.
1: Oh, baby, do you want to uh, stay together? Hey, if you do, then let's please make some new
0: memories. This may be um, random Perhaps not, but how far beyond the actual attraction piece does your role extend within the business? How close do you stay to people once they're actually in the Delaware network, and and perhaps shift into more of a retention focus? Is that is that a part of your remit?
2: Uh, I'd love I'd love that. It's it can be really challenging. Um, so. It's too hard for the scale of people that we hire to take that role of uh, employee engagement once someone's in a role. but really, really important to me is making sure that all the the nice things that we put in talent and say we're going to do is is actually happening when someone's in place. So, I sort of uh, get involved in a lot more on what are we doing when someone's in a role, how are we make it easier. That this is the feedback that we've got, and and uh, the HR and operational teams take a really big lead in that. I deal with some diversity programs, and you know, I'm looking at that particularly to go. I'm sort of mentoring some fantastic uh, women. Um, um, in our workforce, and I, I want to take a bit more of a lead into that that support once they're in a, uh, once they're in their roles, but it can be challenging just given the volume. So I do it really well when it's, you know, uh, I look after all of our senior hiring, and I've hired someone. I check in for first day and first, you know, so I do that well. But it's a smaller cohort compared to the volume that we recruit. But we're actually introducing a lot of surveys to the business coming next month. So that's going to be really interesting. We've got some really good, really great projects, a listening project. So we're going to hear a lot of stuff and we can do some really actionable, nice things to look at employee engagement. So not a random question, (laughs)
0: Lee. I'm just thinking, I mean, I don't know how to frame what I'm thinking, but a lot of the things that you're doing, you know, you need capacity to do them and you've got obviously a huge workforce just thinking about how you know, someone with a smaller workforce and, and, and maybe doing it themselves and also running the business, um, you know, if they own a single venue and, and they're still looking to achieve some of the things that you're achieving. Like, if you could distill, like, the best things that you do or the most effective things that you do
1: yeah. for someone who doesn't have
0: time to do them all, like, are yeah. there specific things that you think have hold more weight um, than others that, you know, yeah. if one thing away from what you do, what would that be?
2: Yeah, I think um – I, I don't know, I've always been successful because I'm, I'm kind, I believe in kindness and I, I know it sounds really low level, but kindness to me in the, the candidate, you know, process is Getting back to people, and I'm sure you've probably heard that when you when you speak to someone that's applied, they're like, "Wow, you know, I applied for still in this market." You hear all the time. I've applied for ten jobs and no one got back to me. Just getting back to people is just such a simple thing that you can be doing. It makes a big difference to your likability as a as a brand. If I was a small venue and you know I didn't have a talent team and I was operationally driven, I'd be using my employees as advocates. So um, you know. Uh, um, looking at programs like employer referral programs, incentivizing people to you know to bring people back into the business and make that as your number one source of hire, and and speci- spend less on advertising. It's probably not not working. So, they're kind of key things. Is just yeah that that uh, ability to look after people in that talent process. And, you know, spending a bit of time with someone once they're in the role, just, you know, consistently checking in on people, um, giving people a voice, uh, anyone can do that. It just takes a little care and time.
1: This is a really, really unfair question, but... Oh, go for it. <laughs> building building brands is where I'm going. And like, in terms of uh, a, a time frame to genuinely build a positive employment brand around a, a, a business... And, or correct, like a failed employment brand, um, which might be even more topical for some people listening to this podcast. Like, or, or, how, how do you go about it and what sort of time frame do you think that takes? Inevitably, it's going to depend on the scale of the business, I get that, but, you know.
2: Correct. I think I don't think it ever will stop, right? Your ability to build positive brand experiences. I don't think that ever stops. Um uh, look, I, I'd probably say if something's happened that's caused some controversy or some uh, negativity around brand that can take a long time to to fix. <laughs> um so yeah, there's no time frame on it. It's it's a good question, actually. There's no real time frame that I've seen on it. Look. I'll probably talk to our EVP project, so that's your employee value proposition. It's a really uh, nerdy talent term, but uh, essentially, it's about what's your value of your organisation that is uniquely different to everyone else. So it's how do you attract and how do you retain people. That's a long-term strategy. So we're going into it doing a lot of executional work this this year, but you know you need to actually be able to measure your brand health, not just by hearsay. You need to give people the, the forum to, you know, comment on your brand and their expectation and experience with the brand. So, yeah, for me, I've been involved in a lot of brand re-changes, um, uh, you know, over, over my time and it's continuous. It's uh, It doesn't stop. So, for a smaller brand, I, I think that you could probably see a little bit more quicker, of course. Um, but, you know, I would test that. I would get the the creatives to actually work out what that is and how do you actually test and measure it to know it's working. Mm.
1: Yeah, like it's like I, I think about it quite a bit because um, it's just, yeah, like we've had other, like this, we go around on this topic a lot and, you know, culture, the importance of culture and, you know, it always being, you can't just let it leave it. You've got to keep nurturing it and that kind of contributes. All these things are just, you've got to have a long term position on it, I think, and, and continue to invest in it is probably. Where I was, you know, my mind's mind's going, but also just, and, and I love, I, I like getting these insights because I sit there and think, oh, I wonder how we could do this in the public service as well. Because for, for me, in in my role, I've been two years in it, and the team's grown from three people through to twenty five or so, and it's an entirely a talent game. And you know, so uh, h- how do you kind of make sure that you're attracting the best talent from across the public sector into my agenda? And therefore, because I know I'll get better results with a better quality team, I have. And it's, you know, and I think that I've only been in the job two years. So I'm looking for shortcuts as always. Mike is Mike <laughs> is the man that loves shortcuts, but, but I think actually I it's a, a too. it's a function of it's <laughs> a function of being you know in doing my roles previously for whatever time that has built a decent. Um, brand around, you know how I try to find pathways for people, all these types of things, and yeah, I like, and I, and I don't know how you can actually run a successful, sustainable, long term business without without a, a, a talent um, retention strategy, really.
2: Yeah. Like, I'd be focusing on advocates for the business because it's continual and organic, right? So you've got your advocates that are continually showcasing your brand Um, from a talent hiring perspective, they're bringing people in. So, you know, I measure it by the amount of people um, on the attraction side anyway, the amount of people that we're getting referred by the business. That's a really good indicator. And there's a number of other other tools, but yeah, I'll let you know how we go with the new EVP. (laughs) Part two of
1: the podcast, (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah. Is that the other thing? Sorry, just to don't mean to monopolize on that, but they're cliche, oh, we're, uh, you know, we're flexible, we're, you know, come and join us for a career. It just doesn't work. I'm trying to be really authentic in how you're um, telling the story on your brand. So everyone's going to say that, but what are you actually doing about it? I think that's my
0: key learnings. I wanted to just dive into the training and development. Topic. I know you had a little chat about that the other day as well. I mean, training is such a huge, topic. the previous guest we had on the podcast was the head of Alara Learning and, and we were talking obviously about training in that, uh, in that episode. But how, is it, how does it look for you at the moment? Is there an appetite from talent to upskill themselves? Is it easy to get them to training? Is it difficult to get them to training? What, what does that look like in your organization?
2: It's really interesting. Training is so many different things for different people. We've got access to our employees for microbiome self learning. Uh, in hospitality, which is a it's a pretty cool tool um, that everyone has access to and it's you know, your self-led training, which I would probably say if I looked at the stats, you know, <laughs> I don't think our whole workforce would be upskilling themselves. Um, but yeah, we've got a lot of leadership development training, you know, culinary training, a lot of things that have been created because it's, you know, the benefit of having a global business and trying to bring it to life in Australia and New Zealand. But we don't have like a training academy, which we had at Crown that I was used to. So, you know, very spoiled in terms of having its own RTO and being able to train, um, you know, entry level to, you know, to soft skills. So, but yeah, training is, yeah, different things across different roles. I think um, the the long-term strategy, particularly last year, Lucas, uh, was to train our way out of this. So, we looked at candidates who, you know, typically, didn't have a lot of skills, Were new to hospitality, uh, who had just awesome personalities that would deal well with their customers. So, that was the key selection criteria is just, you know, being customer focused or having a great personality where you can be confident to deal with people and uh, and then training them. So, how that works is very different to every venue and every role type, but that was definitely the long-term strategy. Um, even things like skills, so there wasn't enough RSAs in Victoria last year to fill our roles. Um, um, so, you know, looking at hiring someone, you know, entry level, even, you know, great job for school kids to work in some of our arenas and, you know, when they hit 17, they do RSA training and when they hit 18, they're in the bars. <laughs> so, things like that, yeah. it, we're actually seen to see a fantastic shift and it's, it's working really well. Yeah, our senior people is more about um, identifying um, really great talent in our business and then offering more structured leadership development training, which there's a number of leaders uh, levels on that sort of curated from the US team. So, yeah, I think it's evolving. I think it's something that will be a big part of our agenda for the late part of this this year.
0: Nice. I want to just jump in on the overseas references, you know, being a global business. What are you hearing from other markets in relation to this topic? Do you get much insight as to whether or not they're experiencing the same challenges that we are or is it quite different?
2: The US is probably about Uh, I would say they used to be 18 months ahead. Now they're probably about, I don't know, a year ahead, you know, so they're The market shifted for them, you know, talent attractions working pretty well for them. They get a lot of talent from overseas in in the US and there's, you know, certain type of visas that you can easily uh, hire people into. So, yeah, I think they're from a talent strategy, it's uh, working quite well. Uh, They hire a lot of casual type, you know, labour. They have less uh, legislation uh, than we have (laughs) uh, in Australia. So, you know, things like, you know, many a couple... Of years ago they they took out uh, resumes so we don't use resumes anymore in hiring so it's not part of the recruitment process you know and that was that took me a bit of time and we're still not quite there to, to influence that here as sort of why do you need a resume? So there, there's a lot around that they're doing around, similar to what we've talked around is more in that um, looking at the experiences through the pipeline and uh, really, because they're so large, there's I think there's 40,000 people uh, that work over, don't quote me on that one, um, over in the States, but definitely their, their mobility and moving people around um, is a really key. Uh, so hiring less people externally and, and really being able how to forge careers internally is a, is a big theme for them.
1: Nice. Kim, what about uh, changes to visa uh, conditions for employment here abroad? Like, what's the latest?
2: Yeah, well, the latest I've heard is that we're going to be the biggest loser in hospitality with any proposed changes that are happening. So um it's not yet set in stone, but we all know that they're going to get a lot of more visa holders into the country. So this year they're on target for 195,000 skilled workers. But they're looking to increase the threshold of the minimum salary component for visa holders, which is currently just um, shy of uh, 54,000 and that will be increased to 70k, It's proposed to be increased to 70,000. So that actually precludes a lot of people on the award. So if you look at the hospitality industry awards, even chef to party doesn't meet that quota on salary. So that could potentially affect the industry. There's also talk about maybe scrapping the labour hire testing, which is a really rigorous and no offence to, to government, but a really rigorous and uh, counterintuitive process. And uh, it doesn't enable us to get, you know, good skills into the country quickly. So, proposing that maybe that is scrapped. But the the main change is going to be our student visas. So, um, student visas have had a concession where they can be work unlimited hours. And then from July 1st, there will go back to in uh, restricted hours, which has changed. It used to be 40, 40 hours per fortnight. It's now increased uh, to 48 hours per fortnight. So, it's great for the educators, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit terrible for our industry. So, we've had that concession in for a long time where we can work students, you know, as many hours as they choose to. So, they're the main changes that I know of. Again, it's, it, there's a number that are still proposed, but um, main things that will affect our industry.
1: I, uh ran into mike johnson who's um you know now taking the top job over the peak body um what's it called luke i forgot i should know is it tourism accommodation australia is that where they landed i can't remember but
0: i think so but I'm not 100%. it's the
1: merged it's the merged entity of the previous aha lot and the um but he was looking very stressed so i imagine he's the, in in canberra as we speak trying to sort that one out for the industry good luck mike um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. oftentimes, you know, these things, it's it's important that the hospitality sector has a united voice on it because, you know, it, the changes are sometimes made for the best um, intentions, but not necessarily kind of uh, thinking about how it may impact all, everybody. So like if you're someone looking to retain talent or sorry, to find talent at the moment, what's the best way of going about it? Do you reckon just advertising on SEEK? What's the best? What's your best strategy?
2: Yeah, we love <laughs> SEEK. We love SEEK, but uh, no, look, SEEK is uh, – job adverts are still um – job ad volumes are still up by 41% uh, as opposed to pre-pandemic so if I was looking at where I was spending my money and trying to find talent I wouldn't put it all on seek Um, so uh, referral programs are fantastic even if you don't reward if it might be a gift card or it might be something pretty minimal but uh, referral programs are fantastic and a lot cheaper to do and then you know definitely your partnerships and your relationships with um, emerging talent coming into the industry so so schools, TAFEs, universities, building that pipeline of early careers is kind of where I would be focusing. And uh, Hastings people. <laughs> Don't forget Hastings <laughs> people.
1: How, how could we? How could we? Never far from how our minds. Yeah. Hey, Impossible. Kim, it's been a great afternoon chatting. Are you ready if we flip into our final five now? Does that, that work for sure. you? Sure. And and I've just got to say, I've been running account here, and I've only—I think I've actually swore more on this podcast than you promised to. I know, so I'm like a little I've bit, been very well behaved. I'm yeah. just a little bit disappointed if I'm Did being honest. So, I'm putting on so, my best um, today. What's uh, what's what's the Wait,
0: shit? See how much you can swear in this final part.
1: <laughs> what's what's the shittest book? You, nah, like, the... I've
2: got a really shitty book actually that I've just read.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've said
2: shittest book.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll well, just, let's go with that. Like, what's I, books to, to steer I, people away from? <laughs> I
2: yeah, uh, I commute a lot to work, so uh, I've got a sometimes 2 hour drive in so i listen to a lot of content but um i've just finished a really shitty book actually i'm glad you asked it's called the shards it's written by the author of uh, american psycho and i did not like it uh 22 hours of listening but um or 24 hours but um at what point did great. you not start
1: liking it though like at the hey. 20, 20th hour or like at the second it's, hour because otherwise yeah. i don't know what to tell you
2: it's a lonely time michael <laughs> on my commute it's a very lonely time um but no, but from a podcast, I've got a good podcast I'm listening to. I'm on I'm on the the GPT bandwagon. Um, it, it, I don't know if anyone's using it. Yeah, Luke Luke's shaking his head because I can see him. But um, yeah, so I'm just I'm listening to a podcast to learn. I'm on it. I'm doing it on steroids to learn all about uh, Chat G, GPT and the technology that sits behind it and how I can uh, have shortcuts, like you said before, Michael. So uh, I'm listening to the Chat GPT podcast, which is super interesting it's micro-learning of, you know, five-minute episodes. Um, But I'm a bit of a geek, so (laughs) it's
1: working for me. One one shitty one and one positive one. I'm glad to hear. Um, And we haven't, uh, this conversation didn't let set too much to music, but uh, is there a favourite artist or album or any recommendations you might have in that area?
2: You know, I've gone gone back. I've gone back to my roots of, uh, my parents used to listen to Paul Simon a lot. And I've rediscovered Graceland. So I have been listening to Graceland um, uh, on repeat at the moment. I love it. It's fantastic.
1: I've got to say on this, and this is just a blatant ad, but I uh, was uh, at the launch of Tina the Musical last night and um, it was uh, uh, just a like a walk down memory lane in terms of some of the, you know, Tina Turner's um, so, so, a repertoire over the years and are uh, simply the best. And I think, I believe, Wayne Pierce and uh, Benny Elias were in the audience, but uh, that's a rumour. Oh, rumor. wow. Um, cool. Now, in terms of a favourite drink you have? Uh, oh,
2: Bloody Shiraz uh, and Mediterranean Tonic uh gin mm. bloody shiraz gin
1: just to clarify you're, you're you're saying bloody shiraz as in that's the name not bloody as a swear word in that instance
2: <laughs> no it's bloody shit shiraz okay. with mediterranean <laughs> it's uh
1: it's
2: uh four pillars bloody shiraz gin It's bloody beautiful
1: bloody four pillars um <clears throat> bloody four pillars
2: <laughs> trying to get as many in as i can yeah
1: very good very good uh and um a uh, favorite venue.
2: I uh, don't have a favourite. Sorry, um, I did my last eatery was at Attica. I okay. ate lots of ants, and uh, <laughs> it was actually a pretty good experience.
1: Excellent. Well, I am still yet to dine at Attica, and that is a big omission in the in the, in my repertoire. Do it, do um, it. And uh, and then our final and one I'm looking very forward to knowing the answer to: Who in the industry are you most inspired by? No one. <laughs> I found them very inspirational myself, actually.
2: I'm sorry, I don't have a one person, and I can't, actually can't name a one person because I, I deal with so many inspirational people, uh, even just at work and through my career and the candidates that I get to meet. But I, I draw a lot of inspiration and appreciation for particularly the chefs that I I work with. They're they're phenomenal. So they're they're people that played up, you know, uh, functions for thousands of people and good quality food, and I just think they're absolute winners. So um, shout out to Marcus Werner. He is our uh, culinary director across Australia and New Zealand one of the
1: greatest? Oh well, uh, and and what a wonderful afternoon uh, we've had! This uh, the pleasure of your company. Kim, very much looking forward to meeting you in person at the very next available opportunity, and then we can hear hear uh, your full repertoire of swear words. Thank you. It's been a bloody great afternoon.
2: <laughs> Thank, Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> Thanks, you. Mm-hmm.